If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it with me to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is the largest book in your Bible. It's found right in the middle, if you want to just open it up to the middle. As I'm doing so, I wanted to bring your attention to a little handout that's at the back of the sanctuary space, right when you walk in and in the front door. You might be helped. There's a bit of a guide of the outline of Psalms 1 and 2 on this handout. Feel free to get up now if you'd like to grab one, you don't have one. Additionally, on the other side of this handout is our church covenant, which we're going to be reading together before we take the Lord's Supper. So this, I believe, will be a useful document for many of you. Psalms 1 and 2. One of my favorite ways to think about the Word of God in general and preaching in particular is to compare it with our diet, the way we eat. I think every pastor needs to know the sheep in his flock and needs to know them well enough to know what sort of diet that his sheep need. The pastor in the early church that wrote the book of Hebrews, or at least wrote the sermon that Hebrews records, he says in chapter 5 of that sermon, by this time you should be teachers, but yet you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. There's much that should and can be said in a teaching of Hebrews, but the point should be simple. Sometimes, because of immaturity, some people need milk. But milk should never be the end goal. The goal should be maturity, eating meat. Or for you vegetarians, the text does say solid food, but milk and meat alliterate nicely. Do you want to settle for milk or do you want to aim for the meat of God's word? Do your spiritual taste buds get filled up on self-centered, fluffy sermons that taste a lot like cotton candy? It tastes good, but it gives you almost nothing. Or have you tasted and seen the difference of God-centered, expository preaching of God's Word? My hope and prayer is that through the ministry of the Word at Embassy Church, Many of you have tasted and seen the difference between God-centered feeding and man-centered feeding. Please do not misunderstand this introduction. I am not saying that I, Phil Howell, am a genius master chef of the Bible and that Embassy Church is some five-star, number one rated steakhouse restaurant. It's that because I'm doing the preaching, it's the best meat in town. I'm simply trying to say these two things. One, Embassy Church should not be a church that settles for milk. That's what we tried to say at the first meeting in the Jindoyan's home that we just referred to. Our aim is to build each other up with the solid food of the Word of God. Secondly, I'm trying to say that there is a difference then between milky teaching and solid food. And that difference is not presentation. That difference is substance, content. The eloquence or the giftings of a particular preacher should be up and down, range and vary. Men should be able to come up to the pulpit and teach you God's word and fumble over their words but give you meat. 
The content of the message is the solid food of the Word of God, and that, in a nutshell, is beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So, Embassy Church, our goal has been and always will be that we do sermon series in books of the Bible to give you meat. With all of that said, I do want to say that I think this series of teaching in the book of Psalms, specifically right now where we're going through the first 41, book one of the Psalms, if the past sermon series at Embassy for the last seven years could be described as me, your chef, preparing a meal of food for you, solid food, not trying to primarily entertain you with stories and jokes, but giving you something to eat, something that you maybe are not even able to digest in one sitting, but need to go back and listen to it again and again throughout the week. I've heard a number of you say, I didn't quite follow all of that, and I listened again. It was like eating and getting leftovers to come home after going out to eat. If that's what past sermon series are like, I want to suggest that this sermon series in the Psalms is more like when my wife and I went on a cooking class date. A couple years ago, instead of going to a restaurant and sitting down and having a nice, wonderful meal and conversation together, enjoying it, taking the leftovers home, we went to a giant kitchen. And there was an instructor who taught us how to cook our own dinner. It's a strange concept on the surface, like, isn't that what you're paying these people for, to cook food so that you don't have to cook? But it was fun. We had a good time. We learned some new skills about how to cook, skills that I actually used for the next two years plus. Skills about just basics with knives and how to chop up vegetables and other things that I should have probably known. But the point is this. I really want this sermon series in the Psalms to be more like the cooking class date than the steakhouse restaurant date. My prayer is that we will eat well. At the end of the cooking class, you do prepare a meal and then you eat it. You sit down and you have a date and you eat your meal. It was delicious. In the same way, I'm hoping that we will have meals to eat every week and that won't change. But what should change is that I want to train you how to use the skills to feed yourself with the Psalms for your soul. I want you to learn, like I did, some basic skills each week. And as we do that week after week, my hope and prayer is that it will be the difference between going to the concert, listening to the beautiful music, versus going to the piano teacher, teaching you how to play that music yourself. The Psalms are meant to be used in both ways, corporately, reading them, singing them, praying them, enjoying them like sitting in at a concert. But don't be settling for spectator Christianity. Let us take God's word and the things that we learn and use them in our lives. And I want the Psalms to be used. I think they were meant to be used as a tool to reorder your life around God, his word, to reorient your emotions and the, the feelings and the things that you're going through in your life. And so let's read Psalms 1 and 2 again this week. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment 
nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. In order for you to use the Psalms well, I think one of the simplest things that will help is to just know the basic outline and structure of the Psalms so that as you read them, pray them, sing them, you'll get the basic flow of the Psalms. So each week, I want to just begin by giving you the summary overview of the Psalms. And we've put Psalm 1 and 2 together because they work like doors, gateway doors, two doors that form a gateway into the Psalms, and that's what we covered last week in our introduction to this series. And so now let's look at these Psalms more specifically. Look first at Psalm 1 on your handout. You should see that there's two ways to break this Psalm down. First, there is the way to see it as a comparison and contrast between a blessed man and a wicked man. Notice the way verse 1 says, blessed is the man, and then everything after that from verses 1 to 3 is all about the blessed man. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. He does not stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. He delights in the law of the Lord. He meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. He, always referring to the blessed man. That's verses 1 through 3. But then notice the contrast in verse 4. But not so with the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And that's one simple way to see it as a contrast between verses 1 through 3 and 4 to 6. A second way to read this psalm is to read it in couplets. If I had to guess, I think that the original author was writing it in this way, but each of the Psalms, it can be tricky to know for sure. But Hebrew poetry will regularly use these couplets. And so as you're reading them and using them, the point is to meditate on these contrasts. So first, you see in verses 1 and 2, who are you listening to is the question. Because who you listen to, the word of the Lord, the law of the Lord meditating on it day and night compared to the counsel of the wicked, the way of sinners, the seat of scoffers. Who you listen to will determine whether or not you will be able to stand. And that's what's going on in verse 3 and 4. There is a person, a man, a woman, who is like a tree. And they're deeply rooted by streams of water. And they are always producing fruit in its appropriate season. Its leaves never wither. But the wicked, uh, they are not 
They're not so. They don't stand with deep roots. They just blow away wherever the wind takes them. Chaff is like sawdust if you're working in a wood shop. It's the the taking apart of a grain or a kernel, and it's, it's the leftovers that just get blown away. It has no weight, no substance to it. And the contrast could not be more stark. A tree with deep roots planted by a stream of water versus something that just blows away in the wind easily. So who you listen to will determine whether or not you will be able to, and notice the conclusion of this psalm, will you be able to stand? Stand in the judgment. And it says in verse 5, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And that's the way to just overview in those two different ways, Psalm 1. Look down at Psalm 2 now. Just get the basic structure. And notice that there are four series of stanzas. Verses 1 through 3. Verses 4, 5, and 6, verses 7 to 9, and verses 10 to 12. And when you look at verses 1 to 3, notice the way that it's about earthly kings, nations, rulers. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. This is the desire of worldly, earthly kings. They would like to plot in rage against the Lord's anointed. Do you all remember what the word anointed is? Mashiach, it's what we get the word Messiah. It's the word we get in English, Jesus Christ. So if you want to, when you're reading Psalm 2, anytime from now on, you see that word anointed, just translate it in your own mind, Christ. The nations and rulers of this world want to be in charge. So if there is one who comes to this world and declares rule and authority, what does that then say to those rulers? Well, you ain't in charge anymore. So there's, there's going to be a conflict. And therefore, this conflict is being spelled out in verses 1 through 3. The desires of earthly kings, of rulers, is to break free from the cords and the bonds of God's ways and rule in their own way. In many ways, this is a description not just of kings and rulers, but of self-governing kings and rulers, you and me. More on that later as we apply this to our lives. Verses 4 to 6 are the desires of heaven's king. The king of all kings says that his desire is to set a king on Zion, his holy hill, and he laughs in the heavens. He's mocking and scorning. Do you remember earlier, Psalm 1? There are those who sit and they mock and they scoff. Sinners, ungodly, righteous, unrighteous people. Here we have God in heaven in contrast to Psalm 1 mocking. We have God in heaven laughing, mocking the futility of their plans. It's like your little two, three-year-old trying to do something that they just clearly can't do and you're just kind of having a little bit of a a chuckle to yourself. Really? What do you think you're doing? There's there's, there's no way you're going to be able to lift up the couch to get your toy under there or something absurd like that. The desire of heaven's king is to set on Jerusalem, on his holy hill, a king who would reign. And so we see in verses 7 to 9 a message to that king. 
So we go from kings plotting against the Christ, God's desire to put that king on his throne, and then here's the message given to the king who would be put on God's holy hill in Jerusalem. Zion's another way to describe Jerusalem. Look at verses 7 to 9. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, your heritage or inheritance. The ends of the earth will be your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Lastly, if you think of this in those four parts, the outer parts are about the earthly kings and the inner parts are about the heavenly king. So we see that the bookend now is to finish up with a message to the earthly kings. Verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Notice the way that the psalm turns, talking from heaven's king to earthly kings and saying, be wise, be warned. And then here's the command, serve. Also could be translated worship. Worship Yahweh the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss his son. Pay honor and do homage, respect, bow down before his feet and kiss his feet as if he is worthy of all authority and glory and praise, lest that son be angry with you and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let me give you a few key words. So that was the structure. In order for you to really use this psalm this week, I think there's a few words that you will be helped to notice and be defined and then meditate on as you take home today's teaching and you do something with it. So first, I want to look at the key word, blessed. Notice the way verse 1 begins with blessed is the man and the way verse 12 of chapter 2 or Psalm 2 ends with blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's why we're treating these together. It's really the hinges of these doors, of these gates. The word blessed, asher, in the Hebrew, it means to be happy, but not a happiness that is dependent on happenstance. Not fleeting happiness, like your chaff, and one day you're happy because circumstances are good, and another day you're not happy because circumstances are bad. A happiness that is deep. We might call it an abiding sanctified joy for every season of life, satisfied, content. The ultimate picture of the good life is what the psalmists are opening up to you. I don't know about you, but are you interested in that? Anybody think that that's kind of the quest of all of human life? Each of us, if we boil it down at its core, fundamental root, I just want to be happy. I want to know how to live in this world and be happy. Why am I doing this? Well, because I want to be happy. I guarantee if you trace it back one way or another, your theology of happiness will be at the root of pretty much everything you do every day. So then, is your understanding of what it means to be blessed and happy rooted in God's understanding of it? Is it in harmony with the ways of God's ways? Or are you finding the disharmony, the disorder, the disjunction between what you think is being presented as happiness and then the emptiness of that? The path and the way 
to this kind of happiness is clearly in our two psalms and for the rest of the psalms in this series is to submit yourself to the ways of God. Submit to them. It's not just memorize scripture. Memorize scripture to bow down, to pay honor and give homage to the ways of God. I love the way Tim Keller says it. There is no refuge from the sun. There is only refuge found in the sun. That, in a nutshell, in the shortest, pithiest way, defines the blessed life. You will not find refuge, happiness, blessedness outside of Jesus Christ. That's our first key word. You need to realize that these two Psalms are introducing the entire Psalter and they are about happiness. That's why the sermon title is, this is a song, a song. It's two songs, but they're basically the same song. You guys ever listen to the radio and you're like, eh, a lot of songs just kind of sound the same these days. It's like a different tune, maybe a different word structure, but like you're saying the same thing. That's what's happening in Psalm 1 and 2. It's one song about blessedness and that the blessed, happy, satisfied, deep life is found in the ways of God and more specifically in the Son of God. Secondly, the man. Now, for anybody that's a little sensitive to gender conversations, this man is not about, well, in the Bible, the blessed life is only for men. That would be a very inappropriate way to read this. That's why I'm teaching you skills. Skills for the Psalms. This word man is about a representative. A human representative over a group of people. And that's why I think Psalms 1 and 2 are actually talking about the same man, but in a different way because it's the same kind of song. The man here is none other than the anointed king and son. This is why last week when we were reading Psalms 1 and 2, our Old Testament scripture reading that Brian read for us was Joshua chapter 1. And I'm not going to read the whole section, but just this little bit. Joshua 1, 7 and 8, Joshua the Lord says, be strong and courageous. Be careful to do according to all of the law of Moses that my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left so that you would have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it, on it day and night so that you would be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then I will make your way prosperous and you will have good success. There is no doubt in my mind that the psalmist is meditating on this section of scripture in Joshua chapter 1. That the leader of God's people, a representative human who is going to stand above and lead and rule over God's people needs to be a kind of person that does not look to the right or to the left but they stay stay firm rooted in the law of God. The law of Moses specifically was said in Joshua chapter 1. Do not depart this law from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night. Same phrase that we see in, Hebrew, in Psalm 1. And then the same concept about your way. Did you notice the language of the way of the righteous versus the way of the wicked? And that the Lord knows that way. And then there's this language about prospering and success. And it's the same words used in Psalm 1. It's a slam dunk reference is what I'm trying to get at. And so when you think about Psalm 1 in that way, that the man here is not just a individual man, although it is, it's a man who would represent and be the leader and example of all of the men and women 
And in this sense, this man is none other than the king. That's what Psalm 2 is about. The anointed king, the one who would be set on the holy hill, the one who would be the son of God. That man will meditate on the law day and night. In fact, some of you may not know this, but Deuteronomy chapter 17 commands that the king of Israel, when he sits down on his throne, this is one of his jobs. Ready? Deuteronomy 17 verse 18. When the king of Israel sits on his throne in his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of the law. I mean, think about that. Could you imagine saying, President of the United States, your first duty in office is to sit down and copy the Bible from beginning to end. I mean, you might be in favor of that sort of idea as a Christian, but I just could not even imagine in our secular society for people to think that would be the best way for a ruler over a people to spend his time. He's got stuff to do. And in the Old Testament, they said, the thing the king needs to do is not let the book of the law depart from his mouth from his mind, from his heart. He must meditate on it day and night. That's why I say Psalm 1 is talking about the man, the king of Psalm 2. Thirdly, the word meditate. I found this most intriguing. Meditation is the Hebrew word hagah, and it's used in verse 2, as you see, meditating on the law day and night as a reference of Joshua chapter 1. But look at Psalm 2, verse 1 with me. Why do the nations rage and the peoples, and there's our word again, the peoples of the earth are hagah, plotting, meditating. The word literally means to mutter. If you wanted to be even more literal, you would say talking to oneself, which I do think makes a lot of sense. When you're mulling something over, you might be talking to yourself in your mind, maybe even verbally outside. You may look a little crazy sometimes, but the idea is that you keep circling over something again and again. And since the Psalms are songs, let me just popularly, very commonly summarize it this way. Meditating is like getting a song stuck in your head. Just today, on the ride to church, my kids were like, oh, why did you get that song stuck in my head? You know the idea, right? A, a lyric, a tune, something, and that you just keep repeating and playing over and over. A blessed human being has the song of God stuck in his head. Songs not just of anything, but of Torah. That's the word law. The instruction is what we defined Torah as last week. The instructions of God, which include commandments, but are not limited to commandments, but also include the stories, the biblical narratives, the poetry about who God is and about our world. Therefore, the Torah, the instruction God gives us, is really all of his word now as Christians, several thousand years later, who now have all of God's word at our disposal we should sing them, pray them, read them, and delight in them, loving God's ways and God's laws. Do you all know the longest chapter in the Bible? It's in the book of Psalms, and it is Psalm 119, 176 verses. I want you to read it. It's one of your instructions to further meditate on the goodness and the blessing of the Torah, the law, I want you to do this exercise. I want you to read Psalm 119. Either print it out 
or if you're okay with this, get a Bible and write in it. And every verse, I want you to circle a word that has a synonym to law or commandment or precept or instruction or testimony or promise or word. And you will notice that I think there's only one or two exceptions where every single time you go through the longest chapter of the Bible, the psalmist is talking about the blessing of meditating and delighting and finding your joy in the word and in the ways of God. But this is not so with the wicked. Not so. Emphatically, verse 4. Not so. What's the wicked like? What do they meditate on? Psalm 2 tells us. They're meditating and plotting with rage. Just think of the emotion-filled picture of people in rage trying to break free from what they feel is the bondage of God's ways. Friends, does that not sum up many people's thoughts about religion or the Bible or Christianity? Like it's chains keeping me in and the nations are raging with plots and meditations to then break free from God and his ways. In light of this being a sermon series of art and poetry, music, every once in a while I want to share with you things that at least flood my thoughts, and at this point this was two poems that came to mind that illustrate the raging meditations artfully. Dylan Thomas, his poem, Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Though wise men at their end know dark is right because their words had forked no lighting they. Do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see with blinding sight, blind eyes could blaze with meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you, my father, there on that sad height, curse and bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Similarly, I was thinking about the very well-known phrase from Invictus. William Ernest Hensley, in his well-known poem, in the last two lines, he says, Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate How charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. And I am the captain of my soul. In various ways, songs, poems, art, 
their meditations of the rulers, the nations, and the peoples who rage against God and his ways, against his purposes, and ultimately they think, as William Hensley said, we need to be the master of our fate, the captain of our soul. So I want to close with three applications slash meditations to help get you started. This is the feasting portion. We have given you some skills, taught you a little bit of how to cook. Now let's eat. Let's take God's word and let's apply it to our heart and to our lives. And then my plan is not for this to be the summation of Psalm 1 and 2, but a few little pieces of steak cut up and say, here you go. And then you've got the rest of the week to feast. Number one, the Psalms should help us personally and communally. Do not use the Psalms individually only. They should help you personally, individually, and communally. I think one of the the strengths of opening up the Psalms with these two doors is that one of them focuses more on an individual. Blessed is the man in singular. Even though he's representative of others, there's this singular experience of the psalmist and of each of us as we enter the psalms. You cannot enter the psalms except as who you are, as an individual. And there's individual worship and individual prayer, but it is not limited to individualism. Psalm 2 speaks of the plural reality of Psalm 1. That Psalm 2 begins with the plural kings and nations and peoples, and it ends with blessed are they. The Psalms are both corporate and individual, personal and communal. And so I would suggest that one of the ways you could use this Psalm and use it appropriately is not just in your morning, individual, evening devotions. That plus, get together with someone this week, read Psalm 1 and 2 together and meditate on it day and night. Do it on the phone. Do it over some sort of video chat. Go for a walk together and read it. Spend time over this series reading and using the Psalms. Any of you going to get together this week? Any of you are going to have like dinner together, lunch, do something? If not, maybe make some plans. Here's an invitation, encouragement. Let's do that this week. That's what a church is about. If you're going to do that before you begin a meal, for example, or sit down for a cup of coffee, Why don't you just read Psalm 1, say a quick prayer, and say, God, help us to find the blessing of your ways in this conversation. Quick, short, simple, six verses. I just wonder what would happen if this was the normal rhythm of using the Psalms in the life of Embassy Church. Secondly, we want to use the Psalms not just personally, but also corporately, and so let's hopefully take our lessons for both purposes. Secondly, I want the Psalms to help you understand the Old Testament. They are meditations on God's word, and I think that if you spend time using them, you might want to stop and pause and think about other things that you've read in the Bible. So, for example, here's a little meditation exercise for each of us. Can you think of another story in the Old Testament where a man represents humans? Can you think of a story where a man represents humans, and there's something about a tree, a tree planted by streams of water. And that that tree represents the life that never withers and never perishes.
Can you think of a time where that tree is central to understanding the ways of God, submitting to the knowledge of good and evil, and that really all of life is in many ways at its root, will you submit and bow to the king, or will you choose to be the master of your own fate? Be the king raging and plotting against the Lord and his anointed. I think the scripture reading we had earlier from Sam, Genesis chapters 2 and 3, should be deeply, richly meditated on in light of Psalm 1. There is a man who walked on this earth, and he only bowed to the will of the Father, only meditated on the law day and night. He never spoke a word that was not in line with the word of God. And that man is the only tree, the only human that is planted by streams of living water that provides for us the source of eternal life. That man is the same man that Psalm 2 talks about, Jesus, the anointed Christ. Can you think of another time, though, in the Old Testament? That's just one little example. Can you think of another time where the Old Testament talks about a tree, a tree symbolizing something, not just in Genesis, well, one of the meditations that I had was in the book of Isaiah. Israel is called a tree. And they are to be a tree of life to the nations. But because of their sin, they've been chopped down and cut down, but there's a root. There's, there, there's the, still the stump and the roots in the ground. And God promises through the prophet Isaiah that from that stump and from that root will come a new tree a new tree of life that will be a blessing to all of the nations. So can you think of a time where a tree represents humans and life and blessing to the nations? Or can you think of stories where God has promised to set his king on Jerusalem and that that king will reign forever and ever and bring life and blessing to all of the world? I can. 2 Samuel 7. Read about David's desire to be building God a temple tabernacle. And notice the way God responds and says, Oh, I have a desire, and that desire is to bless you and make your family a kingdom that lasts forever and ever. In other words, I think when we read the Psalms, not just in our own individual tunnel circled kind of focus or lens, but we read the Psalms in light of their context, the Old Testament you will find deep, rich meditations on God's ways. Thirdly and finally, the Psalms should not just help us with our individual and corporate worship. They should not just help us understand the Old Testament. They should help us understand Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And on your handout, you should see at least four references that should quickly come to mind for anybody familiar with the New Testament. Jesus gets baptized in Matthew chapter 3, and as he gets baptized, the heavens open up and the Spirit of God descends on Christ like a dove coming and resting on him. And behold, a voice from heaven says, Psalm 2, this is my son. Jesus Christ is emphatically applied, fulfilled Psalm 2. This is what Psalm 2 is ultimately and climactically about. Jesus the Son of God, the true 
king of Israel. This happens again in Matthew 17, verse 5, when on a mountain in the Mount of Transfiguration, when Jesus starts shining in brilliant glory, and Peter speaks up in the middle of him trying to say, hey, what should we do here? A voice speaks over Peter's and says, a bright cloud overshadows and speaks from a cloud saying, this is my beloved son. Twice in the Gospels, at very critical moments when the The personhood of Jesus is revealed. What does a voice from heaven say? Psalm 2. Or thirdly, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And having become as much superior to angels as the name he inherited is much more excellent than theirs. For which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? The first passage that is explicitly quoted in the book of Hebrews is Psalm 2 to explain to you that Jesus Christ is the king that the Father promised to set on the holy hill, that this is his plan to respond against the raging of the nations. And then lastly, Acts chapter 4. Jesus Christ has come. He has died on a cross for sinners He has been buried into the grave and risen from the dead three days later. He has ascended into heaven and he has poured out the Holy Spirit on the people of God, all those who have put their faith and trust in Jesus. And this new group of people, they start proclaiming the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ saves, that there is no refuge from the Son, there is only refuge in the Son, for there is no salvation under heaven by which man can be saved, except through the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message that they're proclaiming. And as they do so, Jewish officials get angry. You might want to say they rage. They plot against the Lord and his anointed and his people who are filled with his spirit, and they beat them, they whip them, they put them in prison, and they tell them, never talk of this Jesus again. That's the story in Acts chapter 4. How would you uh, think your life would be going at that moment? Would you describe it as blessed? Would it just be like chaff, like, ah, that's not a good day? These people rejoiced. They had a deep, abiding joy. They said they felt honor to be counted worthy of suffering for the Savior that died for them. And as they regather together, they got released from prison, they gathered together in a room, and these followers of Jesus start praying together. And as they pray, they quote Psalm 2. Listen to their prayer from Acts chapter 4. Sovereign Lord, you who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly, in this city, 
There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with your hand and your plan, what you predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon these threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hands to heal and do signs and wonders performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And then Luke, the author, says, when they had finished praying, the place where they had gathered together started shaking. They were filled with God's spirit, and then they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Exhibit A, Psalm 2, is about Jesus. And it should be prayed as you make sense of the raging of the nations. My hope is that this week, you'll look out and read news articles and you'll hear what's going on and some of you will think, the nations are raging. How do I live with blessedness and joy and confidence? How do I live in this world and not just get blown around with everything that's happening in our lives? Answer, Psalm 2. God has promised and he delivered on his promises so they rejoiced in them and they prayed for confidence and boldness to continue to trust him, even if it meant the losing of their life. Let's pray together now. Father in heaven, we come in Jesus' name and we pray in the power of the Holy Spirit that we would make sense of this world by meditating on your law day and night. We pray that you would give us your spirit in the way that you gave the spirit to these early disciples. Boldness, courage, confidence, an unshakable root that no matter what wind or wave or issue comes our way, I pray, Father, that we would stand firm now and ultimately in the judgment. I pray that we would not look to our own understanding, but we would delight ourselves in your laws and your ways, and that we as a people will individually and corporately treasure your word, the Psalms, and all that is in them. We thank you, God, for sending your son Jesus as our sacrifice in our place, our representative, the one true man who, who really did fulfill Psalm 1 and 2. We're thankful that that has already been revealed and confirmed and established with eyewitness testimony and all of human history at our disposal. And I pray, God, that we would believe and live as you have called us to in light of all that your word says. We pray, Father, for Embassy Church to be mature, strengthened, built up, strongly rooted in your word, and that we would not settle for milk and fluffy self-centeredness but that we would delight ourselves in you, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have those uh, sheets that are in front of you, I would like us to read together, especially for those of you who are members of Embassy Church. If you're a guest, a regular attender, not yet a member, or just visiting us today, I want you to know that you're free to know that this is what we have covenanted together as believers. This is what we want to say it means to be a church together. Or in light of today's sermon, we could say this document is to summarize the ways of God 
And we want to have a, a simple summary of saying, this is the law of the Lord, the love of God for us as a church. And so in light of that, I want to read through this document together, collectively, corporately, and then we want to take the Lord's Supper together to remember the body and the blood of Jesus as he gave his life for ours. Let's read the Embassy Church Covenant. By God's grace, we have been brought to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have been baptized upon our profession of faith. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. We do now, in dependence upon his Spirit, earnestly and joyfully renew our covenant with each other. By God's grace, we will work and pray for the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Walk together in brotherly love and affectionate care, reproving, rebuking, and exhorting one another when necessary. Regularly meet together and pray for ourselves and for others. Raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, seeking the salvation of our family and friends. Rejoice at each other's happiness, bear each other's burdens, and sympathize with each other's sorrows. Seek to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, living a life that is pleasing to God by resisting sin and pursuing holiness. Work together to defend and maintain a Christ-exalting ministry in this church as we continue in our worship, administer its ordinances, exercise church discipline, and defend its doctrines. Contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations. Unite with a like-minded church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word when we move from this church. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.